so welcome to A Slice of Orange. Uh, my guest today is Tammy Kim. She was elected to the Irvine City Council in November 2020 with over 40,000 votes, which is the highest vote count for any candidate in Irvine history, which we're going to ask her about. She's the first East Asian American woman to serve on the Irvine City Council. And in addition to serving on the as the vice mayor of Irvine, she also serves as the managing director of Korean American Center, which is a division of Korean Community Services. So welcome to A Slice of Orange, Tammy. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much, Jody, for having me. Um, you've been a vocal and visible presence at the many events against violence and anti-Asian racism in our county. What message do you want to share about the hate crimes and racism against Asians in Orange County, as well as in our country? Uh, yeah. So uh, I, again, thank you so much for having me here and to to speak about this issue. I, I know we're not just covering this one issue, but um, uh, regarding, you know, we've seen a tenfold increase since last year on um, hate and violence towards uh, the Asian American community right here in Orange County. And a lot of it is really stem from, you know, the, the fact that we are always viewed as perpetual foreigners. Uh, and so when something happens, you know, we're the first ones to be blamed and scapegoated right. and then told to go back to where we came from, right. which many of us have been here since the 1800s. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have nowhere to go except, you know, you know, here in the United States. Right. So this has been, you know, and this isn't the first time, obviously, that this has happened in the course of U.S. history. So, you know, we, which led in many ways to the Chinese Exclusion Act back in the 1800s, um, and then going forward towards to the Japanese internment, uh, we had a situation, um, you know, in the 1800s here, in, in Orange County in Santa Ana, where there was a, a, a case of the plague and it was uh, blamed on the Chinese community in Santa Ana and Santa Ana Chinese uh, Chinatown was burned to the ground. Right. And, you know, no, no history and no trace of this community. Right. Um, you know, so it was really erased from the history of Orange County and what, um, you know, what I'm really trying to do here is, is to really bring awareness of the fact that, um, you know, we're, we're one of the, the last minority groups, if you will, or people of color, where it is, quote unquote, acceptable to, you know, to right. uh, um, put us in this like perpetual foreigner status and to right. tell us to go back to where we came from. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And and we don't learn that history. We don't learn that history, which is why I have been so, so active for actually the past several years um, when it comes to ethnic studies, especially Asian American studies in particular, but ethnic studies as a whole. It, several years ago, um, here within the city of Irvine, where we have nearly 60% of students within the Irvine Unified School District who can identify as being ethnically Asian, but yet no course of study specifically on Asian Americans, um, let alone other people of color. And, um, you know, within the state of California and the California curriculum, I've been an active uh, proponent of the inclusion of ethnic studies here within 
the state of California with the uh, the State Board of Education and actually worked with a, a specifically uh, what we call a Korean task force to make sure that um, uh, we're not erased from right. the model curricula within the state of California, uh, within the, the Asian American section, which uh, several model curriculas ago, we were wiped out. There was right. just mention of yeah. the Korean American experience. Um, and then, you know, no mention of uh, the, the Chinese contribution to the, to the Western expansion in the railroad. Right. Right. So, in you know, a small blip of the 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 Japanese internment, and so uh, that's why, you know, without uh, proper ethnic studies, you know, all peoples of color are wiped off the the right. face of U.S. history, right? Uh, and our contributions are not uh, included, and it becomes a very Eurocentric, uh, right. very very white. Um, you know, version of U.S. history. And so that's why I I think, you know, part of solving this, uh, not only the the anti-Asian hate, but also the misunderstanding and and the the hate of other marginalized communities, such as the African-American, Indigenous, uh, Latinx communities, is that addition of ethnic studies within our curriculum. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, I always call it the sidebar problem that women get relegated to the little sidebar with not integrated in the curriculum, not integrated into the textbook. And I always think, oh, how easy that's going to be to pull out that little graphic on the side for Indigenous, for Black, for Latino, for Asian, for women, all of these groups that are clearly relegated to the sides of the textbook. Exactly. And, you know, and it's not really about having another class or more, but it should be integrated. And really what the model curricula is doing is really just providing teachers and school districts with the tools in order to to teach and to deliver content. Right, right. And, and, And the dilemma for our teachers is... If you weren't taught that, where do you go out and get it? And, you know, with all of the extra time our teachers have to educate themselves to write their own curriculum. Um, And so I think, yeah, I've been watching that process in Sacramento for the model curriculum and just been really interested in how there are so many people who are left out of the conversation. And as each iteration comes, we get a fuller and fuller picture. And you realize the challenge for an individual teacher doing this on their own to try to do that. So we we have to provide that curriculum. Exactly. So I am just really, um, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful that as of, I think it was two weeks ago, Uh, the state of California, the Board of Education finally, finally passed, um, you know, the the ethnic studies model curriculum. Finally, uh, you know, there was a lot of debate and it was debate over the years about who should be included and and who shouldn't be. And, you know, for the first time, um, the Asian American community really came out. I was one of them that spoke uh, to, during the public uh, public comment session um, for 
you know, in support of the ethnic studies model curriculum. And so it passed 11 to zero, which it's really great um, so that our teachers will now have the tools and the resources to start integrating that um, into their own curriculum. And so you spoke about, you know, this this racism, these hate incidents, the the microaggressions, you know, absolutely, and, and making fun of people uh, who are Asian is not new, it um, is not new. but we're seeing more and more people speak out and share it publicly. And, and does that give you hope that different Asian communities are coming together and, and, and protesting and standing and the vigil that we had at, at, the, um, at, at, at the old cathedral Christ Cathedral and in Garden Grove, does that give you hope that things are more public? It, it does, um, and I think why you're seeing this this uh, big outcry uh, within the Asian American community themselves is because for so long, um, you know, throughout our history. Uh, being here in this country, I know myself, and I can really speak to myself and my own experience is, you know, oftentimes we were just told to just put our heads down, don't get in trouble, don't cause any trouble, um, don't cause a disturbance. And we allowed ourselves to be treated as foreigners in this country. Right. And, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in the Midwest and very often, you know, my own home was egged. It was vandalized. It was, you know, graffitied. And we there was absolutely no recourse, Um, you know, being told on the playground to go back to where I came from, um, you know, calling me a chink Chinese kook. Uh, And not that there's anything wrong with being if you're not Chinese, though. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and right. so it's, it, it was, you know, that was a constant growing up. And also, you know, a constant growing up is being, you know, told, or, you know, um, if my mom was a prostitute, or if I was a prostitute, and that the fetidization of Asian women, and, you know, growing up in the, in the 70s and early 80s, you know, we had, and I know it's not talked about a lot, which is really interesting to me, but it was very influential to me in terms of how Asian women were portrayed, which was a film called The World According to Susie Wong. Um, and you know, me growing up saying, I'm not your Susie Wong. And, um, and then, you know, that, that narrative changing a bit to, you know, me love you a long time. Right. And hearing that a lot. And by that time I was, that was like late high school to college for me. So really, you know, working hard to resist that narrative and challenge that narrative. Um, and uh, that really, that narrative in that hypersexualization and fetidization of Asian women is really what helped bring me to the surface in terms of my own Asian American identity. Um, oh, and learning right. about that and understanding that. And a lot of people talk about Vincent Chin, which that was obviously very pivotal for me, but it was really having that voice as an Asian American woman right. um, and 
really breaking that stereotype of being subservient. Uh, I don't know a, a single subservient Asian woman. I can't even know. I know. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who's subservient because my mom's not, my grandma wasn't, right. Um, right. I'm not, my aunts aren't, my cousins aren't. So uh, none of my friends are. So I can't even name a subservient woman, even if I try to find one. Right. Um, and, but yet that, that stereotype exists. And right. it was, really, you know, finding myself, finding my voice and finding my identity and le really leaning into it uh, is a way to challenge that narrative. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly, that's why I was so shaken to the core um, regarding Atlanta and what had happened to Atlanta. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, sitting there in shock and horror as I watch the press conference unfold with the 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 Atlanta and the the surrounding city sheriff department, and watching that in an absolute horror as I saw it going into this direction that I had hoped and thought that we as a society had moved beyond, and that someone like myself has worked my entire life to right. get through those stereotypes. And so, um, um, you know, I, that day, I, I literally canceled every meeting that I had scheduled um, and made calls to mm -hmm. every elected official that I know uh, from Washington, D.C. Um, to here locally to ask them to challenge the narrative. Do not allow the narrative to be around uh, Asian women. Um, I was hearing things about sex trafficking. Right, right. I'm like, okay, sex trafficking is bad. Yes. Right. But to associate this narrative, you know, it's, it's equivalent to, you know, talking about, you know, drugs, and, and, and when you're talking about the death of George Floyd, like yes. how horrific is that? Right. And so, you know, understanding that that is, that is such a triggering uh, you know, response for so many Asian women. Right. Hearing that used in the same breath. Right. Yeah. I, oh. yeah, I, I thought that it was, you know, interesting to see how that narrative was going down that path and how many people resisted and publicly said, we, we are not going to do this again. We are not going to focus on why this boy had a bad day. Mm -hmm. And and I almost think that, you know, the, the sheriff and law enforcement trying to excuse it and trying to rationalize it really empowered so many people to stand up and say, not again. Exactly. Not again. Yes, it, it, it did. And, you know, it also got us to really thinking, you know, myself included, at the humanization that the police you know, had in the compassion and the empathy that they showed to this murderer, this criminal. Right. And had that been a black or brown person who right. had committed that act, 
what compassion they would have showed. Right. You know, the criminal in that case. Right. And so, you know, we, we look at this and we, you know, we, which is why, again, you know, not to, not to make a tangent here, but that is why, um, you know, there is this misperception in the Asian community that a lot of the hate crimes against Asians are actually perpetrated by black, um, black and brown people. When in fact, 90% of the, of the, the, the perpetrators are actually white. Right. But because of this narrative in this, you know, um, the, the, the police response to when it's a black on Asian crime is so intensified right. and so magnified. But right. when it's a white person, there's compassion and the empathy for the purpose. And rationalization that it's and another rationalization. reason. Exactly. That exactly. it's another reason. Yeah. You know, so we as the Asian American community, we need to see this and we need to recognize what is happening and the dialogue that's happening here. Right. Like that's unfolding in in front of our very eyes. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and so you you spoke at at the Stand for Asians event that that we put on at Fullerton College, and I so appreciate that. Um, I've heard from so many students about how powerful your message was and how much they appreciated you speaking about being a woman, about being an Asian American, about being an Asian American woman. Um, and, and it was just another reminder about how important representation is. And I, you know, ha- have been here for 30 years in Orange County and seen the changing demographics of our elected officials. And, and I was so happy to have so many Asian American elected officials representing Orange County. And then it made me sad that so many of you had commonality in your childhood stories. No matter where you grew up, whether it was the Midwest or whether it was here, whether it was other places in California, of those racist things that were said to you as children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder um, you know, what does it mean to be the first East Asian American woman to serve on the Irvine City Council where, as you said, you know, 60% of the kids in your schools are East Asian? So yeah, what does that mean? It, it, it means a lot. So, you know, we've got a large population. Um, we have probably the largest actual uh, single population of Asian Americans within the city. So, um, you know, they, the, the census numbers have like around 45%, um, but, you know, keep in mind that that's considered single race, um, but you also have other mixed races. So basically, you know, you're yeah. looking at over 50, you know, well over half the city can trace their ethnicity to being Asian American. Uh, or some sort of Asian. And so, um, you know, being the first East Asian female uh, elected, being the first Korean American female ever elected to the Irvine City Council, really, it's it means a lot. And, and not only um, it, is it that I 
have that Asian representation, but I'm someone who for years and years have worked within the community and who served as an advocate specifically for the Asian American community and was actually told by, by other people, you know, don't lean in so Asian. Don't, you know, don't, um, and I am who I am. You know, I, I, I'm in the community that I'm in. Um, I advocate for who I advocate. You know, I advocate for all right. residents, but clearly because we've had such a such um, a very uh, shallow voice within the political sphere, uh, within the, the progressive political sphere on top of it. There are right. very, very few of us that are progressive proud progressive Asian Americans. Right. Um, right. So again, I, uh, you know, not to get into, you know, party politics, but there's just very few of us here within Orange County. Most, um, you know, the, the, the conservative GOP has done a really effective job at uh, appropriating our community um, and really um, uh, taking advantage and tokenizing our community. I'll just say it. And, Mm -hmm. So I've worked for years to make sure that, um, uh, you know, our our voice is represented, um, and I've been doing that for years. It, it is on top of you know the the general work I do, which we'll get into a little bit later. So, um, so was not like I wasn't a stranger to advocating for the Asian American yeah. community, and given that half. Um, you know, over half our residents are Asian American. It it really made sense because you know what we're talking about here. We're talking about things such as you know that's not even a progressive issue, but that means a lot to me. Are things such as um, you know language access in our government in our voting, right? Um, right. Things you know in language access as it relates to access to social services, pro- social service programs, and understanding what your rights are as as an American and as a resident. Right. I've worked hard in making sure that our communities are counted and that we're not underrepresented because you know, the, the right. undercounting of our community is tied to, to resources. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, and I look at this as not just an Asian issue, but it's a, it's a community issue. So when you live in a city, right. Let's say Fullerton, let's say Irvine. And there are people who are not counted because they don't have the language access or they don't right. understand that they need to be counted that means we lose resources for our fire, for right. our infrastructure, for our roads, for our libraries right. that affect all people. Right. Yeah. Our yes. schools. Um, and so that's why, you know, when when our community, when the Asian community is counted, it benefits everybody. Everybody. Not just, yeah. Right. Not just the Asian community. Right. And, and as a social scientist, I just want an accurate number. Like, I just want to count everybody. But yeah. it also matters. Yes. So, as right? Like, academic, money follows numbers. Yes. 
Yes. Absolutely. So you want that as an academic, if you're a business, if you're a, if you're a major publicly traded corporation, right. you want to know where the numbers are too. Right. If you are looking at investing or opening up a headquarters in a certain place, you want to know where your market is. So you need that accurate data too. So let's just, you know, let's not like, we can look at it in so many different ways, but right. these are the things that, you know, I was doing within our community that was recognized by other members uh, within the Asian American community too, knowing, okay, Tammy Kim is actually someone who not just talks the talk during campaign, but she's sure. spent her whole career advocating for us. Right. And so do you attribute that work to the, I mean, 40,000 votes is huge when you have at large elections and there are so many people running. Um, and I mean, it just, it was incredible. Yeah. So it, it, it was, um, you know, clearly, um, churning out the vote and getting people to vote. So a lot of people, you know, turning out the vote in a pandemic, yes, in a pandemic. And so, <laughs> you know, a lot of people were motivated to vote, but what was really interesting, Jody, is that there's a, there's a, a thought out there that Asians don't vote. Oh, um, and right. that, you know, so their vote doesn't really matter. In the city of Irvine, because I track those numbers closely. So within the city of Irvine, white voters voted 87%. So 87% of all white voters voted in the city of Irvine, which is amazing. Amazing. That's amazing. And guess what the percentage was for Asian, all Asian American eligible voters? It was 87%. Wow. Wow. 87%. And, that, and so that is incredible. Yeah. So again, I don't, I, I don't dig into data numbers and maybe that's something you do, but I, you know, but what I, what I can tell you is I, I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, they had candidates that they wanted to vote for and that right. they wanted to support, right. um, you know, which goes into, into representation. Right. I, I, you know, most likely the, the the reason why I had such a large margin over like the second second and third place um, winners as well is is because I had a lot of you know uh, API crossover. So mm -hmm. it means Democrats and Republicans, mm -hmm. you know, voted for myself. You know, voted for Farrah Khan as mayor. So we were able to have that sort of crossover that you right. know, may, may not have normally existed for, let's say, a mainstream candidate. Right. And you talk about being, and, and, and it is sort of interesting because um, there are so many Asian Americans elected on the Republican side, and now we're starting to see in Orange County more and more candidates on the Democratic side. And, and do you think that that will start to shift as, as more people see your example of being a progressive Asian American candidate who who you know is is definitely visible in the county i hope so uh you know i i i think it, it's really it's about investment and it's about mm -hmm. about investing in a pipeline and i i think for too long the democratic party had kind of given up on the the 
AP community just kind of like talking it as a loss saying we will never get this community and like sort of gave up um, and, and thought, okay, well, I guess this will be a community that will belong to the, to the GOP. We'll get the Latino community. We'll get the African-American community, but you know, Asian Americans, uh, you know, And, and I just think there wasn't much investment in the pipeline at all. Yeah, no, there, there wasn't not for the, not for a very long time. So, you know, my, the, the investment in me really came from um, originally outside of Orange County, because I also with, with Irvine City Council, I, I think the party had who they wanted to run. Right. Um, and they had already preordained uh, certain people, and I wasn't one of them. Sure. Um, not really understanding that I was actually very involved in the community right. and not really understanding the changing demographics as well. Right. Um, and understanding that a lot of Asians are actually, you know, progressive, they're Democrats. Um, because, you know, of certain things, uh, mostly around, um, you know, immigration, uh, healthcare, right. you know, these types of issues that have really, um, you know, made a lot of Asians kind of like crossover. Right. I think, right. you know, there's still, I would call it more social issues versus economic issues. Sure. Um, sure. And so, you know, you're kind of in this dilemma because as Asians, you know, we tend to be a little bit more fiscally conservative, a little bit more pro business, a little bit right. more pro free market, if you will. Right. Um, um, but for, on social issues, and, and that was sort, that's been a, the dilemma for a lot of Asian Americans and deciding sort of which way to go. Sure. And so that's why you saw a lot of Asian Americans actually supporting candidates like Bloomberg, right. for example, because it was like, right, right. You know, there's a, they're they're it's, Democrats, right. It's not an exact match when you have a binary system of only two parties. Exactly. So, you know, what do you do? Um, You know, and there's this, you know, third new wave party that that's uh, attractive to a lot of, um, you know, to a lot of Asian Americans, but yes, in this like hyper binary system, you know, political system, you're like one or the other, which, but with that wow. said, you know, I'm, I'm more of left of progressive sure. <laughs> and, so, um, and I, but I, I do think it, it, it absolutely is growing. And with the growing demographic, we're now approaching third generation Asian Americans who can vote. My right. son, who I can, who's considered, you know, third generation. Uh, and we, we call third generation are the grandchildren of the first immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. uh, you know, my, my parents were born in Korea. I was born in Korea. Many of my friends were either born in Asia and came here at a very early age right. or born here. And so I, I, even though I was still born in Korea, I still consider myself a second generation Asian American, right. uh, my parents being the first and Raised my son, by an immigrant. Yeah. And my son being, you know, third generation, but he was able to vote for the first time. And he is very progressive, him and all of his friends. So they were like Bernie supporters. So they're like in the group of sure of like, you know, where 
capital, like they've just seen a country that has been in war. This is, you know, their whole lives. So they're like Gen Z progressive. They don't understand. They've never seen Cold War. So they don't understand, you know, communism versus capitalism. Um, Communism is not a spooky word or socialism is not a spooky word because all they see is runaway capitalism. Right. So, you know, you have that and you have a growing that growing demographic. So you combine all of that together and now you can see where there's a growing uh, democratic. Yes. Demographic. Yes. That shift. And and yeah. And I and I think that that the words really resonate differently to different generations. And I think that that's something that politics still has to figure out because, uh, yeah, my kids certainly have not seen the, you know, glories of capitalism in the same way that the baby boomer generation thinks of the post-war era of World War II. So, so coming back to this idea, because I think it's sort of fascinating, the idea that, um, you know, you, you served on the city commission uh, as a finance commissioner and, and what, what did you learn from that experience that led to your campaign of you wanting to get more involved? Yeah. So I was an appointee of uh, then council member Farrakhan, who is now um, um, mayor for the city of Irvine and served as, you know, was appointed as her finance commissioner. And really, you know, the reason why I was appointed as her finance commissioner was to, was actually because I had business experience um, and I was responsible for like multi, multi-million dollar budgets across the globe and really had an understanding of complex um, business structures. Yeah. And it really, again, helped me to understand um, what was really going on in the city and, and how to operate. And I think, um, you know, running for an office like city council, I know serving on a commission is really invaluable experience. Um, and, and not all the time. I mean, I have a planning commissioner. My planning commissioner is like an actual developer, like of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And I really need that expertise to right. help guide. And so, you know, it, it's, it's really like taking your talents and your experience and being able to leverage it in a way that helps your community and helps your city. Um, and, you know, that's what I was able to do from a planning commissioner standpoint. Um, but it also helped me in turn from a, uh, from a municipal perspective. Right. Um, you know, looking at, a, you know, working for a global Fortune 500 company and understanding those budgets, you know, it, it, some of it is very much transferable, but there's, you know, different things from a municipal perspective. Sure. Sure. And I think anyone interested in in taking their talents um and serving their community by way of commissions I think is a great great experience and I also think on the flip side people who are running for office um I, I think it's invaluable to serve on a commission because you know what you're getting yourself into right you have sort of the knowledge and the experience like on day one yeah. There's always ramp up. There's always going to be ramp up regardless, sure. but, you know, not serving on a commission and coming like fresh out of nowhere 
um, is it makes that ramp up even that much more difficult. Sure, sure. And and so now as a councilwoman, you get to choose commissioners to advise the city. Um, and so what are you looking for in potential commissioners? And, and, and what advice do you have for anybody who's interested in applying for a city commission in their own city? Yeah, so the, the, um, the main advice that I would have for anyone who's running um, is to reach out to the council member that you are interested in being appointed by. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's like number one, um, talking about your skills and your experience and how that would parlay into a commissioner spot. Because again, I, and I'm just going to be real about it. There's a lot of people who apply and many times the the council member may already have somebody in mind. Sure. And so a lot of it, and I hate to say it that way. And so, you know, reaching out directly mm-hmm. is the single best way to get yourself known. Yeah. Most emails are public in how to reach your city council member. So doing that is critical and key. That is actually how I landed with my transportation commissioner because mm-hmm. he did that outreach. He yeah. reached out to me and said, this is what I've done. And I was like, wow. Okay. He right. wasn't on my radar, but now he is yeah. not only that, but I appointed him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's the biggest, I don't know if that's what the official city would say. Um, that's okay. I'm not talking to the official city. Okay. Yeah. So good advice. <laughs> It's good advice. It's the, it's, it's the real, real right. advice. And, yeah. you know, another person who was interested in our um, Irvine families, um, uh, Irvine Parent Family and Youth Commission, uh-huh. um, and our Child Care Commission also reached out directly to me. And I made sure that she was like front and center. Uh, yeah. She went through the interview process and unfortunately didn't get selected because there were just other candidates sure. who were whose experience was more applicable, but it at least got her in the pipeline because I had had actual experience working with her. And so, um, and I love how many commissions your city has. Yeah. We have a lot of commissions, I think compared to other cities. So, so we have nine, now 10 um, commissioners, Mm -hmm. uh, commissioner spots. And so, you know, I'm really proud of, also the diversity within my commissioners. So I was really able to appoint um, um, quite a few people who had never had the opportunity to actually, or thought of as being possible commissioner material. Right. um, And really providing those opportunities. And and I think that's something that sometimes gets lost when we're talking about representation on city commissions or, or on city councils, because, it's not just your seat that we're talking about. It's the doors that you open and the recognition that you have because of your lived experience of who isn't at the table. And I think that that is so important when we're talking about, you know, Katie Porter being, uh, you know, the, the only single mother to be working in Congress. She sees when there's a panel on childcare that there are no single mothers, she yes. sees it in a way that, that past Congresses haven't seen. So, yeah, I think that that's really crucial that you are able to then open the door for other 
community leaders, whether they ever run for anything or not, there is value to having their voices heard on the commissions. Exactly. And so you, you bring a different depth and perspective um, to, to the office and to the city that hasn't been thought of before. And, you know, I, I, I'll just, this isn't really, you know, from a commissioner standpoint, but I'll give my own experience. When I first, so I was elected and my first, one of my first meetings was with our Irvine Police Department. And I asked them, how many police officers can speak a different language other than English? Right. That had never been asked before. And it was, I wasn't trying to interrogate them, but I just, I wanted to right. know. Right. And then to find out there's only like three officers, sworn officers that can speak Chinese. Mm-hmm. We have a huge, huge Chinese population. Right. Um, there's, we, there were some Korean officers and I talked about, I said, what kind of cultural competency training have you had? Like, well, we haven't had any. Right. And and so I really um, talked to them about, you know, we talk about implicit bias training, which is very, very critical. And that was especially what came out of BLM was really around that implicit bias training. But then you have the other side, which is cultural competency training. And when you understand how to interface and deal and understand the cultures of the community, of the people within your community. And so one of the first things I did was um, worked on um, getting cultural competency training for all IPD for the Korean community for Korean culture mm-hmm. and they the, the the police officers were able to experience Korean food that was catered right. um, you know right. working with the consulate general's office from from Korea in having uh, in, in connecting them with the Korean law enforcement agency group that they had never had any connections with whatsoever right. and really talk about recruitment plans for uh, in making sure that we have more police officers who can speak Vietnamese, Chinese, right. and then coming up with recruitment strategies to like how many more, uh, you know, white police officers do we need in the city of Irvine when over 60%, 70% are Caucasian but yet our city is now 50% Asian and you want to celebrate the diversity, but then there's real challenges to that and that's public safety. So when you have a community that can't communicate properly or where the officers don't have the cultural competency to work with our communities, um, right? then what do we, you know, then what happens? And so, you know, the fact that I was able to bring that lens that had never been brought right. before. Right. Right. And, and just get people starting to think about questions that have never been asked. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what representation yeah. means. Yes. Um, it's just bringing a different perspective yes. and in asking, yeah, to your point, Jody. 
asking those questions that have never been asked before that have never been challenged because part of challenging that status quo is to bring those different perspectives. And that's what I hope to do with the commissioners that I bring on is to, to really challenge the very foundation of the way we do things Mm -hmm. because the way we do things is really built upon uh, uh, systems and structures of, right. uh, of you know, English only, white supremacy, right. of all of these different things. Right. In, in working at challenging that um, to say, like, what are we doing that is more diverse Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, it, this hetero patriarchy, you know, it's, it's, it's very right. intersectional, right? So, right. It, you know, like as a woman, as a single mom myself, you know, um, well, you know, what are we doing to make to your, right. your example with Katie Porter uh, as, you know, how do we make single women, single moms here within Irvine more comfortable because everything right. is around the family nuclear nuclear right right and i right. never really fit that in irvine as being like a single mom here within irvine sure. and so it's really sure. you, you go to things and it's very awkward because everything's centered around this f- traditional family yes yeah um so yeah it, it, absolutely it's, it's everything and that's why representation matters Absolutely. Right. Right. And, 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 and giving that space for, to ask questions that haven't been asked, Mm -hmm. I think is really important. So, so tell us what you do in your other world, your professional career with uh, Korean community services. Yes. So uh, that's my day job. Yeah. And most people don't realize that city council is not a full-time job. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's almost a volunteer job. Um, you, I, I get a, I get a stipend and, yeah. uh, you know, so I still have to make a living, which I'm so blessed and so fortunate um, to do the work that I love doing, which is really, you know, working within our Asian American community and uh, providing that, that social safety net Mm-hmm. For our Korean, you know, community and our Asian community, um, and it's you know expanding beyond that uh, in serving, um, you know, all marginalized communities um, right. within Orange County. Um, so, Korean Community Service is the largest social service agency um, for the Korean community, but we've again expanded beyond that. Um, we provide everything from primary health care. We are a federally qualified health care center. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we are the social safety net program. Right. Um, So we provide direct primary medical care for those who are uninsured, underinsured, uh, CalOptima, homeless, Mm -hmm. um, but with our Korean expertise, Right. Language access is not an issue. Uh, sure. We are also expanding in Vietnamese um, and Chinese as well in serving, you know, the entire community in Buena Park, Fullerton, that North County area right. and Koreans from all over the county. So we have Koreans, uninsured Koreans, undocumented from 
Irvine that come to to Buena Park to our um, right. to our health clinic. Um, and the division that I run specifically is called Korean American Center, which is based in Irvine. And we are the cultural heritage program. So we provide um, and anything around education. So mm-hmm. that's why I was very active in the ethnic right. studies right. Uh, and model curricula and making sure that we're represented with in, in the model curricula. Um, we are designated by the South Korean government to teach uh, and promote Korean culture uh, within here, within Orange County. Um, and we are also um, designated by the U.S. government, the National Foreign Language Center, because Korean is considered a national security language. It's an undertaught language. Mm-hmm. And so we work on developing curriculum. Um, but it really, the way, why we started was to reclaim our heritage. Um, and so we, there was really no means or no mechanism um, to learn about our role within the United States as Korean Americans, our history as Korean Americans, understanding the history of Korea because we're not taught, uh, we're only taught European history. When when we're taught world history, it's actually European history, starting with Greek and Roman civilization and then moving to to, uh, Britain and Britannia, uh, Spain. And so it was really as, as we uh, expand and develop here in this country, you know, having no mechanism to reclaim our language, to reclaim our culture. Mm-hmm. And as we're moving into this third generation, many second generation Korean Americans weren't equipped to even teach their children right. anything about what it means to be Korean, uh, whether, you know, knowing how to make kimchi or, you know, right, anything right. traditional or our hair, you know, yes, our, yes. our uh, uh, holidays. And so that that's really the root and genesis of where we started from. Mm-hmm. And then it just expanded and it, it sort of coincided with Hallyu, uh, which was the Korean wave, BTS, you know, K-pop, and and all yeah. of this, but um, and when we talk about reclaiming our heritage, uh, you know, we also have to remember, you know, the way the United States was back in the 60s, 70s, where uh, in before then, even with the early German, Swedish uh, immigrants, Italian immigrants, where America had English only policies and English only. Um, uh, protocols for education. And so everyone was forced to speak English. And if you didn't speak English and our parents strove to make sure that we didn't get behind, my mom was told that my English wasn't that good in kindergarten and she freaked out, never speaking Korean ever again to me because she thought that I would be slow. I was told like I would be mentally, um, unfit for school if I didn't, um, you know, if she continued speaking to me in Korean. And so um, that was just the prevalent thought back then. And it's such a common thread. You know, I, I, so many of my friends, you know, were brought up not learning Spanish. Yeah. So because of those same prejudices and exactly 
And, and that- the divide then of not being able to communicate with your own grandparents because exactly. of that, of not being able to think and dream in another language is, is such a hindrance. And it's just so common. It is. And so that's where, you know, the impetus of, of, of Korean American really started. Um, and so, uh, and then in 2017, we merged with Korean Community Services okay. to become like a full service, like intergenerational Korean yes. American um, organization. So um, dealing with the needs of first generation immigrant needs, mm-hmm. which includes, again, language access navigation. Um, to more of what we call the high class problems, which is heritage language um, in sort of recapturing our place in society, making sure that we have a political voice, um, you know, all these things. So you have like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was just going to say, it sounds like your organization follows Maslow. Like, here we go. Yeah, we do. At the bottom and we take you all the way to the top. Yep. Um, and, you know, intergenerational, like yeah. from grandparents to great grandchildren right. to Maslow's hierarchy of needs right. and, right. Uh, and, you know, and everything in between is what we were really looking at doing. And for the full, the full county, because, you know, Fullerton Buena Park was always that traditional area for Korean community services. Right. And with the sort of the, the movement and expansion of uh, the Asian American community here in more South County with Irvine, especially, uh, we just, there was, it just made sense that we would, um, you know, merge and grow instead of having, you know, a bunch of competing organizations. Right. Right. Um, and you know, the, the executive director of Korean community service, Ellen on and I are like wonderful friends. Uh, And we just knew that, it made sense for our development and our growth as Korean Americans and, and, and what we could do. And, and it makes it easy for the families to know that there's one place to go. It is, it it really is because again, you've got grandparents with certain needs, right. And you've got grandchildren with other needs, right. Or children or, you know, whatnot. And it really allows, um, for when you can talk to your grandparents yes, and you can communicate what a difference that makes uh, that, that intergenerational communication. Right. And so, you know, we, you talk about it from so many different lenses, from a mental health lens, from just healthy families lens and understanding, you know, even for myself, when my Korean improved, so did my own relationship with my parents improve. And it was so crazy just under, like the fact that I lived nearly all my life with communication misunderstandings with my parents because of like one word or two words, you know, that made a huge difference. A huge difference. And being able to like bridge that, communication gap, even within my, with my own parents has made such a big difference. And now that they're getting a lot older and with medical challenges, you know, the fact that we can talk about dentures. Yes. 
Yes. White blood cells or whatever. I mean, like, yes, a deep, a deepening and an expansion, you know, depression and knowing in having like knowing the words. Yes. Having the words, having the words is so has been so like mind altering and and it's, it's been transformed you know, transformative. It's a testament to to how important communication is and, and language is at the core. So yeah, amazing. So share a little bit about your community service. I know you're very active. So, uh, so in addition to, you know, Korean American Center, Korean Community Services, you know, I also co-founded and in part of a political action group called Asian Americans in Action. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing a lot uh, when it comes to, again, amplifying the Pan-Asian voice here, the progressive Pan-Asian voice mm-hmm. within Orange County. So uh, aaaction.org is our website. Uh, Facebook group is live and kicking uh, right. Asian American action. Um, you know, join our group. And really, uh, it's a it's a home for progressive Asian Americans here within Orange County. So if you think you you don't have a home and especially those that may not want to be like, Oh, Democrat or Republican or be part of that, that binary dynamic, um, you've got Asian Americans in action and and we're the home. And so it's been a real, I've been really proud to be part of that for the past several years. Um, I I stepped away during my campaign, but, you know, back on in advisory capacity. But one of the things that we've been doing uh, that Asian Americans in action has been super busy working on are all the anti-hate resolutions that have been going out to the board of supervisors, um, and as well as municipal municipalities here within Orange County and working on, you know, that issue for the the anti-Asian hate and working again, um, pressuring the board of supervisors to invest more in communities of color, um, not just within the Asian American community, obviously, but all communities of color, because many times we're, we're all in this together, Uh, investing more in, you know, OC human relations, so we can do uh, training. Um, And a lot of, you know, the community based organizations, it's very difficult, because of, you know, funding sources uh, that come um, from the Board of Supervisors, but yes. with Asian Americans in action, uh, we can align ourselves politically mm-hmm. or not. Or to, not, right. And, and have a, a much more stronger vocal presence in terms of advocacy work and helping um, really reshape policy here on the local level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how can people, and especially my students, uh, get involved in their own communities and, and with organizations like community, uh, Korean Community Services? Yeah, so with Korean Community Services, you know, go to, uh, I mean, feel free to send me an email. It's Tammy at Tammy.Kim. So feel that. free to send me an email because we have so many different uh, different things that we do that it's really difficult um, sure. to 
it, it just depends on if your interest is in healthcare mm-hmm. or it's in, you know, teaching or education. So it's a broad, uh, a broad array of, of things, but feel free to shoot me an email. I'll be happy right. to point you in the right direction. If you let me know what your interest is, mm-hmm. um, you know, visit uh, koreancommunity.org. Um, there's also koreanamericancenter.org. Um, for the Korean American Center aspect, mm-hmm. and feel free to to um, to shoot, look up what we do, and, yeah. and express your interest. And Asian Americans, aaaction.org for Asian American like advocacy uh, work that's Pan Asian. Good, good. Well, thank you. So many so ways much. to be involved. Yes. I know so many ways to be involved, and I think, I think you know when um, when my students don't have parents that have been involved, they, they don't know how to even get started, and so it's great to give them so many options and and so that many avenues. Me. That was yeah. me. I didn't come oh, from a political family. Most Asian Americans don't. Most people of color don't. We're just trying to survive. Our families are just trying to eke out a living yeah. and just trying to keep it all together. So right. it is not uncommon for probably many of your students to be in the exact same situation sure. Um, sure. as I was. So that's a, a real important way to get involved. Um, and, uh, you know, for on the official side, um, for, uh, you know, if you're involved in city work, um, city political work, mm-hmm. you know, feel free to, to shoot me an email, um, you know, yeah. always looking for interns uh, in that capacity. So if you want to get involved that way, that's also another opportunity from, right. from that perspective as well. That's great. Mm-hmm. So uh, I ask some questions at the end of each show. And so let's start with uh, what's the best advice you've ever got? The best advice I've ever gotten is to just uh, not let things get to me um, and not let uh, anyone attack me. Okay. Um, I love it. You know, yeah. not let it actually, I'll, I'll be really specific. Um, my, I, I used to get like teased a lot. Um, for being like Asian. And one time my mom just said, don't cry. Don't come home. If you're going to cry, don't come home. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Right. And and really, uh, you know, uh, read into that. however you want. Sure. Sure. Yeah. But you know, if you, if you kind of take that and I like that you softened it a little. Yeah. I softened it a little bit. (laughs) That's that's actually more what happened. That's the more. Sure. But but I do. I think, um, yeah, I, I think I, it, it kind of takes me back to what other people think is none of my business, right? What they think of me, uh, that's not, that's not my life. You just can't let it, right? you know, project right. on you and stick on you. It you takes know? a while to really embody it. It but. does. It does. It, it does take a while, but uh, I would say that's, that's the, if you can most save important. yourself a few decades and, and internalize that early, you will be much happier. Yeah. You will be. <laughs> yeah. So what's a book you like to recommend to people? Okay. So, you know, people have like maybe more profound things, but <laughs> I, for me, um, the, the last book that I read that was so moving and poignant for me was, it was a fictional book called Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, uh, Pachinko. It, it was really a story, uh, um, 
And I think it's a relatable story, but it's a story of like four generation of Koreans in Japan. Oh, yeah. And that was so fascinating. Right. Um, and very universal in many ways. Sure. So uh, that was my last amazing read. Good. We're always looking for amazing reads. Yes. Yeah. And then is there a hopeful message you can share with our listeners? The hopeful message, oh my gosh, there's there's just so much happening in the world today. Um, and really the the message of hope that I have is just believe just you because that's all we can do yeah Yeah. is just believe don't lose hope yeah yeah um and not to sound like cheesy or cliche but no no you know yeah it it is the only message of hope I have is you you can't you can't give up yeah good and then who should we talk to next Oh my gosh, there's so many amazing people to talk to. There's just, uh, you know, I mentioned one of them who I work for is Ellen Ahn uh, for Korean Community Services. She's the managing director. She's amazing. Um, There's, uh, you know, Priscilla Huang, uh, who's amazing to me for Asian Americans in Action. Uh, Susan Liu uh, with Asian Americans in Action, Marianne Fu with Okapaka. These are just so many amazing women. Yeah. Um, they're doing so many great things in the community um, to uplift. You know, Alex Kim, uh, who is now at Cotty Petrie Norris's office, is so amazing. And these are people who are really embedded. Um, in the community in like so many different ways. And right. you know, I just like to, to uplift them. Um, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Assemblywoman Sharon Quirksova recommended oh my gosh, you early she on. So yeah. Sharon Quirksova, just let me tell you, she uplifts like everyone. Um, I know. When I am down and she lifts me up, yeah. Um, and while I was running, while I was campaigning, uh, after being elected, she is definitely someone who is um, worth mentioning in terms of following. And she's the real deal. Um, yeah. Like, absolutely. Um, well, she was she was one of the first to say you have to talk to Kim, Tammy Kim. Yeah, she is just what Sharon does is she uplifts like and gives a space to yeah. like so many women of color within Orange County um, because, you know, oftentimes we don't have a space and we don't have a voice. Right. And, you know, she has helped so many of us navigate through the political system, if you right. will, um, when, you know, yeah, not absolutely really- one that is holding the door open for others. She yeah. is like propping it open, keeping it open. Yeah. You know, she's putting like the door stopper there so it doesn't close. Right, right. It, that's what and, we need to do. And that's what, you know, and, and that's really, you know, the type of the type of women that we need in elected office that really right. helps to uplift right. and um, you know, not part of like the boys' club mm-hmm. um that that really work to to keep 
right women right. down, but yeah. to really like elevate. I see some great them. hope in in our generation and and the generations that follow us of of no longer believing that there's only space for one woman. Right. There, there has been in the past this competition between women in believing there's only spot for one. And, and I think our generation is like, we can build a bigger table and we will prop that door open and come be with me. And it will be better when there are more of us. Um, and I yeah, see no, that as absolutely really inspirational for, for the generation that follows us that won't have to deal with some of the stuff, that yeah. we, those messages we dealt with. And I think Sharon really best, uh, you know, amplifies that, that message. And she, she, in everything she does and in terms of, you know, we, we have um, this group that she helped start, which is called uh, BWOC Bold Women of Color um, to really help elevate, you know, the, the activist, right. The, the, um, elected leaders, yes. non-elected leaders, um, yeah. and yeah. really making sure that um, she provides a platform to help yes. them amplify people like myself, amplify right. my voice. Yeah. And, and, and to those listening, you know, there's room at the table, you know, we, we want to help and mentor and, and, and get the next generation of women. Uh, in the door. So yeah, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. And um, I know you've got a lot to do. So uh, I really appreciate you carving out some time. Thank Thank you, Jody. Thank you.